Hi everyone, welcome back to Michael and Us. Uh, Luke here. You'll notice there's no uh, intro music or any clip at the beginning this week. Uh, frankly, we're not in a very celebratory mood, what with everything that's been going on. I'm here as always with my co-host, Will Sloan, who's recently been silenced, had his freedom of speech taken away by the powers that be, for the unforgivable crime, apparently, of wishing death on Baby Yoda. Yeah, thanks. We're actually not recording this at the Gore Lieberman studio today. We're instead recording it at my cell at Rikers Island, where I've been placed in seven days Twitter jail. And what they say about Rikers is true. You have to fend for yourself here. It's the law of the streets. First thing I did, they say, go up and beat up the biggest shit poster you can find. And I did. Chuck C. Johnson now lies in critical condition. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, watch yourself. So for people that don't know, Will made a death threat against uh, the fictional character of Baby Yoda and uh, had his Twitter account taken away for seven days, which for you is particularly harsh punishment. This is the first thing Will said when he arrived, or I should say when, when I arrived to visit him in his, uh, in his cell at Rikers Island, was that uh, he's been thinking of things to tweet all day and he can't. And what's so funny is... Um, He's actually been kind of shadow banned in a way that uh, he can see Twitter, but he can't He can't actually say anything. Yeah, that's what they do to you. You can browse your feed. It's like sensory deprivation. You can't favorite. You can't reply. You can send DMs on Twitter, but you can't send photos with DMs. So there are a lot of people out there who have been like, Oh, Will, I know you're in a difficult situation now. Let me, let me help you. Let me be there with you. You know, can I stay over at yours? And we can't even send pictures to each other. And Twitter, I think, does this deliberately. Now, I should say, I mean, you, you've already issued, the Michael and Us podcast has already issued a press release. Um, and, you know, we, there, was a, there was a moment where I thought that we might have to, you know, just suspend the podcast because you may have thought it was funny. And, like, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm a free speech warrior, so I don't think you should have had your Twitter taken away. But I, I disagree with what you said about Baby Yoda, and I wasn't sure that we were going to be able to continue the podcast. And I wondered if there was anything you wanted, you might want to say to perhaps some of our listeners who were hurt and, and stung by your words. Well, I do. And for a little bit of context, the way this came about was Esquire magazine tweeted an article about Baby Yoda from the new <laughs> Disney children's show, The Mandalorian, from the Star Trek universe. <laughs> And, and the uh, and the tweet for their article said, The Mandalorian has made Baby Yoda an icon of purity, a rare moment where we cross the internet aisle to simply say this is good. People should look up uh, the tweet because, and it's on our, it's on the Michael and Us Twitter feed because um, there's a little, <laughs> look at its face, there's a little picture of... Of, of innocent baby now, Yoda. Who would want to harm that creature? And Will, you know, I don't know what your excuse was. You've been having a very bad day, I suppose. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, there's always... a fine line between irony is used as a cover by the most toxic <laughs> bros these days. And I think this is an example, you know, and you, you're always an especially bad culprit for trying to have it both ways. And I think this was an example where you really, you really crossed the line. So I responded to the Esquire tweet. I said, I actually hope he dies painfully. And that seemed like a pretty innocent sentiment at the time. But then I, I swear within 15 minutes... I had been banned. I was told I had been banned for seven days and that I would have to delete the tweet. Because this is, it's seven days because this is not my first banning. <laughs> the first banning is 24 hours. And both times I've been banned, it was directed at intellectual property from the Disney company. <laughs> 
What was the other one? The other one was about a month ago on the Disney Plus Twitter page, they posted a cartoon <laughs> of the Simpsons all dressed up as Disney characters talking about Disney Plus. And I wrote underneath it, die. <laughs> and so I got banned for 24 hours for that. When I asked if there's anything you wanted to say to the listeners, yeah. you, you seem to take that as just an opportunity to kind of rehash the, the saga and to kind of martyr yourself within it. And I guess the words, I'm sorry, just aren't in your vocabulary. The I think that's is, what I got from your thing response. Is, I wanted people out there to understand what I've been living with for these last few days <laughs> as I, you know, rot in here playing my harmonica, you know, waiting, waiting for the guard to deliver a letter from my girl. Just throwing who it. Who I hope is still waiting for me <laughs> just, on the other side. Just throwing a ball against the wall and catching it over and over again. And what I've come to realize is that all of God's creatures deserve love, even the fictional ones. You look at little baby Yoda and you look at his oversized head and you say, <laughs> why would anybody want to twist it off? Why would anybody want to kind of like pull, pull it off and have its little neck snap? And, and then take the head and, like, crush it in the palm of your hands so, so that the, the oozing gore filters through your fingers. Who wants that? Yeah, I mean, who it's, indeed? It, it's a disgusting thought, and, and that's not me. Mm. Well, well, it's not you anymore, I guess. It's not me anymore. Yeah. I mean, I was in a dark place when I wrote that. I think it's just because I'd been deprived of so much beauty. It made me realize how important beauty in the world is, and so... You mentioned that I was throwing like a ball against a wall. There have been times when I probably would have wanted to throw a little baby Yoda himself against the wall, but but for him to not bounce back, for him to sort of splatter against the wall. But that's, again, that's not me anymore. Now, there were a few ways you could have responded to this. And I have to say, initially, I thought, we, as I said, we might have to suspend the show because I was I was just so upset with you that you would do this and you, you would bring the show and, and also, more importantly, my brand, my personal brand into such disrepute but there are a few ways you could have dealt with this and you know because you're an edgelord at heart i thought you might go the kind of more obvious route and you know launch your own podcast called triggered <laughs> um, which you've threatened to do on, on a number of occasions but but fortunately you seem to be taking this in stride as an opportunity to, to grow and i think that's why you know with some work we can we can continue to do our our quasi ironically branded michael moore podcast I'm always looking for ways to do better. I mean, I, I know that fundamentally I will never understand what Yoda suffers. <laughs> and, and it's tweets like that that just, I think, have no place in our discourse anymore. I just want to say the, the other thing that I really have to get off my chest here is, you know, there are a lot of people out there who position themselves as vanguards of free speech, who when... You know, a college kid has something to say about uh, the dining hall shouldn't be serving sushi or whatever. They're out there. When people get mad because, uh, you know, somebody wants to start a racist pizzeria or something, these guys are out there. They're in the streets. They're posting up a storm. And, you know, I just want to say to the likes of, you know, Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro and others, you know, where are you on this? Because uh, they're, they're coming for you next. If an ironic Michael Moore podcaster can't tweet threats at imagined Disney characters, where does it stop? Think about that. Yeah, I guess as I languish in this cell, I sometimes wonder, you know, why of my heroes? Why has Dave Rubin? Why is Ben Shapiro? Why is Jordan Peterson? Why has, has Stephen Fry <laughs> abandoned the noble cause of free speech? Where is Ricky Gervais, whose work I've talked about and supported so often on this podcast? <laughs> why is he not standing up in my behalf? And that's why I call upon Michael and Us Nation to tweet at these people, especially Dave Rubin. 
I want you to flood Dave Rubin's Menchies. I want you to do the hashtag Free Will Sloan. And I want you to tell him to stand up for my right to speak. These guys should be tweeting it at Jack. At Jack, you know, uh, unban Will Sloan. I mean, if they won't fight for a conservative intellectual, (laughs) who will? One of the only reasons I do this podcast with Will, uh, as you all know, uh, if you've been listeners for a while, is that he's one of the the few remaining moderate conservatives. <laughs> you know, he stands up for traditional values and he defends free speech, but you know, he's not a he's not a fanatic. He he's a he's more of a kind of a Burkean. And um, if these guys don't stand up for that, uh, you know, conservatism is going to belong to the likes of Donald Trump, and we can't let that happen. Actually, this is another reason why I'm sorry because as a Burkean conservative, I of course admire Disney as a free market enterprise <laughs> but you know of course i resent the cultural marxism they're constantly inflicting on the public with movies like captain marvel and the character of Minnie mouse uh, because there should only be boy mice so obviously i have conflicting feelings about disney yeah some of the some of the anti-capitalist subtexts in mary poppins have never sat well with me <laughs> you look at a movie like fantasia and it has no story all it has is music and cartoons And that's the birth of the postmodernism that has destroyed morality in the 70 years since it was released. So folks, I think I've gotten what I need to from Will. We're going to carry on the podcast in spite of everything that's happened. You know, he's going to he's going to try to do better. He's going to grow. But it's also vitally important that we all fight this ludicrous ban. So go to WillSloanInnocenceProject.com to learn more uh, and help uh, help defend free speech. Did you see the baby Yoda that was revealed in the pilot yet? I have seen it on the set. I've seen it on the set, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreakingly beautiful, and it's uh, and I saw two two technicians operating it remote. One was for the eyes and the mouth, and the other one was for other facial expressions. It's a phenomenal technical achievement, and beyond the technological achievement, it's heartbreaking. Why is it heartbreaking? I don't know. I I only saw it on the set. I haven't seen it in the movie yet. So, uh, because I haven't seen it yet. In two hours, when I have seen it, I can answer it. But on the set, it looked absolutely convincing. It made you cry when you saw it. You know, what I love about that clip of Werner Herzog is, you know, we've all seen Herzog in the jungle talking about, whenever I am in the jungle, all I see is pain and death i do not see beauty this is a place that god has made in anger but he sees baby yoda and he fucking loves it he thinks baby yoda's incredible what do you think he thought of the film uh, the, the mandalorian <laughs> so wait they were all at the premiere for the mandalorian but isn't the mandalorian like an eight-hour tv show they probably saw like two episodes I don't okay know. Uh, i i mean i don't know who knows maybe they, they didn't have a sort of empire state like length screening where they just sat <laughs> yeah. there for eight hours or, was, or like like when you go see wagner's ring cycle and it takes place over three nights because it's such a sweeping epic yeah, just as rewarding i'm sure <laughs> Herzog always talks in interviews about how he's not really an avid film goer. He he only sees a couple movies a year. And I love the idea of he finally sees a Star Wars thing, The Mandalorian. He's like, fuck, I should have been watching movies this whole time. This rules. <laughs> now, in his, look, look at the special effects. Look at Baby Yoda. In his defense, that was before he'd actually seen the movie. Yeah, maybe he likes it. Maybe there's know. a Werner Herzog exit interview where he where he's just maybe, trashing it. Maybe he's like, this is how movies are supposed to be made? Why did I make all these boring films yeah. in the jungle. Yeah. He's, like, he's like, we are burning copies of Agira, the Wrath of 
God, I used to think that you had to actually film all those people going down a mountain, but with computers, you can make anything. Yeah, and then he's just going to be announced next week. He's directing the, the next Avengers movie. Yeah, he's remaking Fitzcarraldo, but instead of actually pulling the boat, he's going to create a digital boat, and it's way easier. If he'd known this whole time, he would have just done it that way. Folks, this week, uh, you know, partly for opportunistic reasons, but I think really for quite earnest reasons to to make amends with, uh, you know, for my co-host's recent slight against friend of the show, the Disney Corporation, and its patriarchal father figure, uh, Walt Disney himself. We decided to watch, uh, what, 2013's Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah, somewhere around that. Something like that. Starring Tom Hanks, America's dad. Will's favorite actor. As Walt Disney. Uh-huh. Here you are. It's an honor, Mr. Disney. Oh, you gotta call me Walt. A man inspired by her book. I promised my daughters that I'd make you and Mary Poppins into a movie. No. No. A story inspired by her life. She's family to me. Mary Poppins was a real person. I won't disappoint you. Don't you want to finish the story? Saving Mr. Banks. I have an idea to make you happy. You didn't bring me all the way here to tell me that. Oh, no. I had a wager. I couldn't get you on a ride. Yeah! This was a piece of Oscar bait about... Uh, the true, the incredible true story of how Walt Disney convinced the reclusive author P.L. Travers to sign over the rights to her signature character, Mary Poppins, so that he could make his beloved and acclaimed <laughs> film. In addition to our collective uh, hatred of Disney, most recently expressed by Will's uh, threats of death against, uh, against its latest creation, Baby Yoda, there's another reason why I think this film was was crying out for a Michael and us treatment. And that is because, you know, it's like so many of the films we've watched for this podcast, it is kind of a a very heavily fictionalized account of something that is, you know, looking with sort of dewy-eyed awe at something that's very banal. In this case, you know, the corporatized your know, studio production of, of a movie. An earlier version of what is now kind of the staple of uh, how blockbuster movies are made, right? Uh, You take a text of some sort. A piece of intellectual property. Yeah, a piece of intellectual property. You secure the rights to it. You erect a fortress of property rights and patents around uh, around those documents. And, uh, you know, you milk them for all uh, all their worth and you make a ton of money out of of it. And this what this film uh, is about is how there's actually uh, this was never really about money. There's actually something very beautiful and personal about this. Not only in in the creation of of the Mary Poppins film and in this kind of uh, supposedly creative tension between Walt Disney and Travers, but also Disney himself uh, is shown, you know, in this movie made by the Disney Corporation uh, to have had very uh, benign and and quite uh, noble motives in uh, seeking to produce the Mary Poppins film. They make movies in North Korea, and I kind of feel like they're probably a lot like this, you know, just movies about dear leader and what a great guy he is. And there's no there's no tension. There's no real conflict. You know, Kim Jong Il in those movies probably is just like a a great avuncular guy who's hanging out with his military (laughs) guys. guys and cracking jokes so let's get into what the film does a little bit what can uh, you know generously be called the plot and also the sort of weird neo-victorian period drama that makes up about a third of the film this movie's over two hours and there's there's not a lot there there are two main strands there's travers played by emma thompson who as the film opens is in dire financial straits 
the royalties for her Mary Poppins books have dried up. She doesn't want to write any more books. And for over 20 years, she's been resisting increasingly lucrative offers from Walt Disney to adapt the books into a film. She's a very pure artist. She doesn't want to see her serious and very personal books corrupted by this figure of Hollywood vulgarity, Walt Disney. Now, this is where the film immediately runs into problems because, of course, its principal mission is to convince us that actually the sort of origin story of Mary Poppins is quite uh, beautiful and noble. That's the thesis of, of the film. But as its own text makes clear, you know, she's doing this out of economic necessity. She has to sell the rights to the film or she's going to lose her house and be destitute. Mm-hmm. So right from basically the first scene, you know exactly where this is going. And of course, you know where it's going anyway, because you know Mary mm-hmm. Poppins, the film was made. Mm-hmm. But it's something that really undermines the principal conceit of the film. Right. So that is established. And yet this film tries to generate tension of, okay, she hasn't quite signed over the rights to Walt yet. Maybe she maybe she won't, even though she has to. Maybe she won't. Now, so most of the film, um, and I really do mean most of it, consists of the Emma Thompson character at uh, what is, I guess, supposed to be the Disney Studios, which is very conveniently represented as sort of mom and pop little <laughs> little shop, like a kind of small two-story building with a, a, a music studio that's about the size of like your elementary school's like music classroom or whatever. And Walt's office. Yeah, yeah and Walt, Walt is just right around the corner where, the, you know, the three guys played by, uh, the three amigos played by Bradley Whitford, uh, Jason Schwartzman, and who's, who's B.J. Novak. And B.J. Novak. Uh, the screenwriter the, the and... office the, temp. Screenwriter and the two songwriters yeah. who are brainstorming ideas. And every now and then Walt will come in and hum along and provide his own productive input. <laughs> so much of the film, you know, you wonder, you might be wondering, how do you ring, you know, over two hours out of this? There's another way that we'll get to in a second, but the, the principal way is that you spend a lot of time uh, fixating on these very minor and ultimately pretty insignificant pieces of Mary Poppins paraphernalia. And this is, I don't know, pretty indulgent on Disney's part, I think, because Will and I, but we want to make clear, we're not actually anti-Mary Poppins. I think we both grew up watching we, it yeah, and we've enjoying seen it. Yeah, um, you know, I probably still know all the all the songs and stuff, but it's very hard to see, you know, who is really interested in this kind of uh, fan fiction about, you know, where did Mr. Banks's mustache come from? By the way, we're told that the reason, I don't know if this is true, we're told the reason Mr. Banks has a mustache is because Walt Disney... Uh, sees himself reflected in Mr. Banks, uh-huh. and he has a mustache. And to me, that's pretty sinister, actually. It's like Walt Disney was like, damn it, I own the, I'm going to own this now, and I'm going to get to manipulate it however I want. I'm going to insert myself into it. The other strand of the movie is P.L. Travers' own origin story. Growing up in rural Australia in the early 20th century, she grew up on a farm with her manic pixie dream girl father, played by Colin Farrell, who for a lot of the movie is shown as this kind of winsome, uh, lovable man-child yeah. who's constantly uh, getting into mischief. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he is in favor of imagination. He, <laughs> well, it, It's most unorthodox there, at the time. There's a, there, there's a scene at the beginning where they're leaving kind of their, their house in, in one part of Australia. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, then they're, they're going out into rural Australia to a kind of homestead. And you very presciently said, like, oh, yeah, they're going to go and they're going to find that, you know, at his new job, 
Bob, you know, nobody understands imagination. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. He, he, he becomes like a partner in some kind of banking firm. And I mean, this is one of the things I hate about this movie. The fact that it's so overstuffed with allusions to the Mary Poppins movie where like there's, there's a character named Katie Nana. He, the guy works at a bank. There's this, there's that. Mm-hmm. It's like all these scenes are like, young Bruce Wayne seeing a bat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and as you put it, it's like her childhood is depicted as if it were a Disney movie, a sort of dark Disney movie. And it's impossible to overstate how incongruous the Colin Farrell bits are with uh, the rest of the movie. It is like another movie. It's this kind of a neo-Victorian chamber drama that takes a dark turn when it turns out that, uh, Colin Farrell is actually an alcoholic and that he's failing at being a banker because, you know, his uh, playful imagination is coming up against the vicissitudes of, of you know, middle-aged life and the need to make money. And he's too, he's too innocent. He doesn't want to be debased by it. Um, and that's, so I guess he gets, what, TB or something. And his, He's also an alcoholic. He's an alcoholic. And, and, and uh, Travers' mother tries to commit suicide in a, in a really kind of strange and dark scene. And, and it is, uh, it really is like something out of another movie because the rest of the film is so light and fluffy. I guess they felt they had to add it because otherwise it would the sort of Mary Poppins origin story would have no substance at all. But it doesn't really work very well because the film is trying to tell us that, uh, you know, this, this lovable, whimsical thing that we all know and love, Mary Poppins, you know, actually has this very kind of tragic origin story and is deeply personal. But the connections it draws between the Mary Poppins story, between the Mary Poppins characters, and kind of the you know contemporary thread uh, that's inhabited by Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson, connections are pretty tenuous. For example, pears play a very strange role. Oh, there's yeah. a there's a scene early on when Emma Thompson's character arrives at her hotel room, which has been stuffed full, you know, in a in an extremely alpha move by Walt, full of like goofy and and all this all this Disney junk basically. And then there's a fruit bowl with pears, and she starts throwing the pears out the window. And I said, oh, it's going to turn out that there's some trauma linked to pears in her past. Uh, and like Chekhov's yeah, gun. Yeah. But even then, like, the pears were just present in a few scenes. It wasn't really clear, like, uh-huh. she, I think she, like, drops a pear when her fa- she finds out her father's dead I mean, or that, something. that's screenwriting 101 yeah, shit. Yeah. The pears are not a good device, is what I'm saying. What Walt realizes eventually is that Mary Poppins is not a story about the nanny coming and helping the kids. It's really a story about the nanny coming and helping the parents, helping them find their inner child, helping them get back in touch with their family, perhaps helping them with their problems in their bedroom. Uh, of course, that's not depicted in the Mary Poppins films. I'm, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> surmising that probably happened off screen. <laughs> and it all leads to a dramatic scene where Walt Disney shows up at P.L. Travers' London home and talks about his own tale of woe. The fact that he had a Mr. Banks in his own (laughs) life, which was his father. And we thought this was, we thought, okay, this is the penultimate scene. And somehow there was like half an hour left at that point. You know, I thought Walt was going to connect with P.L. Travers over their mutual dislike of of a class of people that we might call the bankers, if you know what I mean, Miss Travers. 
but that, in fact, uh, the movie does not go that direction. His, his final monologue is really just, yeah, about how, you know, the banks has mean something to me, too, because he had a, a hardworking, laconic dad, who you it know, sounds like, yeah. by the way, was a much better entrepreneur than, uh, <laughs> than, than Mr. Travers. If I were giving sc- uh, screenwriting advice to the makers of this film, I would have also had a flashback strand with Walt. You know, young Walt with with his troubled relationship with his father and his own, you know, coming of age as a mouse creating like entrepreneur. Charles Foster Kane, like childhood in well, Missouri. I just think that the clash of the titans nature of this story would have had more weight if we, you know, got to know more about Walt aside from the fact that he was an avuncular guy who in one scene talked about his a sort of difficult relationship with his dad. Now, I have a kind of a a Straussian reading of this movie. Let me know what you think about it. But it's been my observation for some time that a huge number of kind of the normie films turned out by Hollywood are actually about uh, the divorce and the collapse of the family. Especially in the 90s. Yeah, since since kind of the moral majority and the Reagan revolution. You watch this film and you think, this is a nice little movie about how Mary Poppins, you know, made the incredible magical journey from the printed page to the silver screen. But I think if you watch it closely, uh, you'll see that what it's actually about is how in the absence of nannies, the patriarchal family unit disintegrates. Because uh, if you notice in the in the first flashback scene, when Colin Farrell is, uh, you know, scampering away and, oh, we're going to find our, our new home. Very Chaplin-esque. Yeah, yeah. They're waving goodbye to the nanny in their old home and, and she's crying. And the family is depicted as being entirely kind of secure then. Mm. And everybody finds the dad's antics like charming and delightful. Things only take a dark turn later. And so I think if we're to take the film at its, at its word, the Mary Poppins character was the author inventing the surrogate nanny that would have saved her family. So what the film actually is, is it's a cautionary tale about how Uh, the patriarchal family unit falls apart unless there's an exploited class of domestic servants. I'll just note as one final piece of evidence for my thesis, in the scene where they're looking through the storyboard sketches, Mrs. Banks is depicted as a suffragette. And uh, Mrs. Travers takes great exception to this. She says, why why is she one of those uh, silly, you know, suffragettes? I think basically... uh, this is a crypto uh, Tory movie about the you know traditional the traditional family as it was uh, before the '60s and second wave feminism and and you know newfangled stuff like workers' rights came along and spoiled it all. I mean, I think Walt himself would like this reading because he was sort of you know a, a benevolent father figure of his own company, and you know everything was operating very well at that company as long as the workers knew their place and you know didn't say try to unionize like they did in the 1940s. Then, unfortunately, the the beautiful balance of the company or should i say the family would collapse <laughs> also um travers does get a nanny figure of a sort in this movie as embodied by paul giamatti as her uh, limo driver one of the weirdest subplots really. one subplot too many i think who you know she is absolutely horrible to, as she is to everybody in the movie she's very sort of cruel and flippant to him, uh, telling him to shut up and to not talk to her. And in the big emotional moment, she realizes that she doesn't even know his name. And then at the end of the movie... He shows up at the premiere. He shows up to her hotel to drive her to the premiere. And he's like, you know, Miss Travers, I knew you'd need a friendly face to help you today. <laughs> That's right. The freelance limo driver who she abused <laughs> yeah. constantly shows up at the premiere. I'm glad you raised this because this is another kind of weird issue with this movie. 
don't ask me why or how, but I had actually seen this movie once before. And um, my memory of it was that the Emma Thompson character, even though she's portrayed by Emma Thompson, who's, you know, a great actress who's been in many great films, and she's meant to be very sympathetic, she actually isn't very likable. And I mean, neither mm. is Walt Disney, really. Like, she actually it is just uh, somebody who's kind of resisting... Uh, out of what seemed to be purely neurotic reasons, you know, the creation of the film Mary Poppins that we all know. Well, because the movie begins by having her say, no, Mary Poppins isn't for sale. This is my creation and it will be cheapened if Hollywood takes it over. But then what we find out is, oh, it really has nothing to do with her artistic integrity. It's all about this trauma with her father and she needs to let go of of her trauma and the way to do that is by selling her IP to Disney so that so that Disney can take it on. Like, like that's the healing process. It's not about her art at all. If you cut every corner, it is really not so bad. Everybody does it, even mom and dad. If nobody sees it, then nobody gets mad. It's the American way. So something came to mind uh, when we were watching this movie. I think that the best uh, way you could describe it is listeners outside of Canada will not be familiar with the institution of the Heritage Minute. One day we may do an entire episode on Heritage Minutes because they are a quintessential Canadian institution. So the the Heritage Minute, uh, this was a, uh, I guess, publicly funded TV ad that you'd, you'd see uh, all the time if you were a kid in the 90s, as we were, if you watch TV, I don't know if they're still on, I suppose they must be, you'd see them over and over again. And what they were designed to do is kind of uh, foreground important pieces of Canadian history. So they're meant to be kind of um, edifying. So for example, there's a famous one about James Naismith, uh, who, an Ontarian who invented basketball. Um, or yeah. there's one about Alexander Graham Bell, things like that. There's one about the uh, Halifax explosion. But one of the funniest ones in terms of how kind of tortured its premise is, is one that tries to claim Winnie the Pooh for Canada. And we'll, we'll, just, we'll just play the clip now so you can hear it. So you'll be fighting in France tomorrow, huh? Well, good luck, Captain Colburn. No one you can be sure will take very good care of the bear. You are noting that he's the official mascot of the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade? Yes, sir. So long, Winnie. You'd be a good girl while I'm gone. Why Winnie, sir? From my hometown, Winnipeg. Oh, Daddy, I just love Winnie. Couldn't we take him home with us? Christopher Robin, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write some stories about Winnie, and Mr. Shepherd here will draw some pictures. Oh, Daddy, let's call him Winnie the Pooh. Why Pooh, son? I don't know, just Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> And that's how a young Canadian soldier's bear inspired four volumes of stories and verse that still sell millions of copies around the world. I'd also recommend, uh, you know, watching the clip, obviously, to get the full effect. So so the bear was Canadian. So the bear was Canadian is is the idea. Now, I think we'd be remiss uh, if we didn't kind of walk through some of the uh, problems with this film on just a more uh, kind of technical level. It took all of uh, five seconds of Googling to get to the Wikipedia page where there is a, a quite a large section called historical uh, accuracy. Oh boy. And I'm just going to read a few paragraphs from this. So wait, I, I just want to say the movie ends with P.L. Travers 
watching the Mary Poppins movie at the premiere and weeping very sloppily, I guess because the trauma has finally been lifted from her shoulders. Well, the implication is that is that her giving the film to Walt Disney is like her letting go of, of her past in some way and letting her move on, which is yeah. kind of tenuous. But um, that's going to be less important, uh, you'll see in a second. So... Saving Mr. Banks depicts several events that differ from recorded accounts. The premise of the script, that Walt Disney had to convince P.L. Travers to hand over the film rights, including the scene in which he finally persuades her, is fictionalized. Disney had already secured the film rights, subject to Travers' approval of the script when she arrived to consult with the Disney staff. In fact, Disney left Burbank to vacation in Palm Springs a few days into Travers' visit and was not present at the studio when several of the film scenes depicting him to be present actually took place. As such... Many of the dialogue scenes between Travers and Disney were adapted from letters, telegrams, and telephone correspondence between the two. Although Travers was assigned a limo driver, the character of Ralph is fictionalized. Oh, you don't say. And intended to be an amalgamation of the studio's drivers. In real life, Disney's story editor Bill Dover was assigned as Travers' guide and companion uh, during her trip in L.A. The film also depicts Travers coming to amicable terms with Disney, implying her approval of his changes to the story. In reality, she never approved of softening the harsher aspects of Mary Poppins' character, remained ambivalent about the music, and never came around to the use of animation. Okay, so one quick uh, digression here, one quick pause. The, the sort of breakthrough moment in the movie when she finally realizes she's on board with this is uh, when they come up with the Let's Go Fly a Kite song. And she starts tapping her foot along, and she starts uh, dancing with Bradley, Whit- Brad- Bradley Whitford, a.k.a. Joshua Lyman. That's the, the sort of great moment of kind of emotional breakthrough, creative breakthrough in the movie. Completely made up. Disney overruled her objections to portions of the final film, citing contract stipulations <laughs> that, he, that he had final cut privilege. Travers had initially not been invited to the film's premiere until she embarrassed a Disney executive into extending her an invitation, which is depicted in the film as coaxing Disney himself. After the premiere, she reportedly approached Disney and told him that the animated sequences had to be removed. Disney dismissed her request, saying, Pamela, the ship has sailed. The movie actually tries to thread that needle sneakily because when she's sweeping in the audience and Walt leans over to comfort her, she says, Oh, I just can't stand animation. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bit more here. Although the film portrays Travers as being emotionally moved during the premiere of Mary Poppins, overlaid with images of her childhood, which is implied to be attributed to her feelings about her father, co-screenwriter Kelly Marcel and several critics note that in real life, Travers' show of emotion was actually a result of anger and frustration over the final product. (laughs) Reportedly, Travers felt that in the end, the film betrayed the artistic integrity of her work and story's characters. Resentful over what she considered poor treatment at the hands of Walt Disney, Travers vowed never to permit Disney to adapt her other novels to any purpose. Travers's last will bans all American adaptation of her works to any form of media. Oh my God. According to the Chicago Tribune, Disney was, quote, indulging in a little revisionist history with an upbeat spin, adding, the truth was always complicated and that Travers subsequently viewed the film multiple times. I don't know. I listen to this and I think there's a, there's a way to make a really good movie about this. I think even the Disney company could make a good movie about this. The way to do it is either, of course, make a black comedy about this poor woman who, in her hour of desperation, had to sell her beloved story to this unfeeling company. Or, if you're the Disney company and you want to make a movie about how great Mary Poppins is, you make a somewhat complicated story about how, no, she wasn't okay with it, Yes, she was maybe taking advantage a bit, but hey, we got Mary Poppins out of it. So aren't, aren't you happy? Maybe she was wrong. By the way, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the presence of Tom Hanks in the film. 
I mean, look, I, I don't like the man. I think he's a menace. And, and I think you have to look at this man who has all the power in the world and chooses to spend it on this material and, and say, what kind of investment have we made in this man? I mean, I particularly dislike his late career where he is determined to, like Walt Disney himself, buy up all of these beloved cultural icons, whether it be Fred Rogers Sully Sullenberger, Walt Disney, I know whoever else he'll play in the future, maybe Gandhi, maybe Churchill, and sort of like affix their essences to him. He is the Walmart that moves into a historic site (laughs) and, you know, keeps a bit of the exterior of that historic site. And the stories he chooses to tell are about gentrification. Look at You've Got Mail. Look at this movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not just literal gentrification, but the gentrification of culture in general, Mm -hmm. right? You take uh, something like this story and you you just soften all of the edges and you turn it into this fluffy bit of kind of... Uh, you know, saccharin pablum, which is entirely made up, mm-hmm. uh, which is being produced by the Disney Corporation as a kind of piece of corporate fan fiction about itself. Yeah, it is. It's like private sector propaganda. <laughs> yeah, th- this movie should have played at the Disney Company holiday party and never been released to the public. What's great is I was thinking that you know because of Disney Plus, where our conversation today uh, began, um, stuff like this. You know, I mean, this film has very strong kind of you know made for TV vibes yeah. and now because of things like disney plus if they make more things like this they will just be behind a paywall they will skip the theaters at least i hope and hopefully we won't have to be subjected to them i do think disney should make a sequel with its marvel cinematic universe which will be the touching story of stan lee cutting his <laughs> partners including jack kirby out of the profits for their creations <laughs> make one about uh, about george lucas selling star wars to to bob Iger. yeah and like george george lucas in his in his hour of need because he's he's only got a he's only got like a hundred million dollars and he needs to sell he needs to sell the rights to star wars and it'll be a much shorter movie it'll be 10 minutes and it'll be george lucas being like hey bob i i have a script for episode seven and bob Iger will be like that's nice you can you can go away <laughs> right so the the, na- the emotional uh, arc of the film is that george lucas has to be you know his version of of not wanting there to be animated penguins in the in mary poppins is is you know bob Iger wants the film to be less reliant on certain uh you know bland uh, ethnic stereotypes and uh, and a little more diverse to to fit the spirit of the times but bob my films were diverse i had Watto, i had jar jar one of the kind of uh crucial points of conflict is when george views the rough cut and 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 takes great exception to the black stormtrooper <laughs> it's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious if you say it loud enough you'll always sound precocious supercalifragilisticexpialidocious so i've given you my reading of, of uh saving mr banks which is kind of a, a crypto uh tory film about uh the need for uh for strong patriarchal figures but also you know domestic servants to uh, to do all the important uh work that keeps the family together but on Michael and us, as you all know, we're free speech warriors. So, uh, you know, we hope for that reason we'll get his Twitter account back. But we like to welcome, you know, all perspectives. So I didn't want to offer my uh, point of view on, uh, you know, the politics of the Disney Corporation, politics of saving Mr. Banks without offering kind of a, a contrary perspective. So uh, I turn to uh, Canada's premier right wing think tank, the Fraser Institute here, a 2016 post. Uh, Mary Poppins, Song, Dance, and Latent Socialism. So we're going to do a little 
Michael and us uh, reading series here. We're going to go through this just so you can get an alternative perspective. My daughter's tiny school is staging a performance of Mary Poppins this coming holiday season and the rehearsals have begun in earnest. If there is a connection between Mary Poppins and Christmas or Hanukkah or any other religious holiday for that matter, then it's lost on me. Th- thanks for that. Uh, the script that the school is using is adapted from the Disney film version that came out in 1964. Some may remember the film for its magic fantasy song and dance, but I was struck by the film's latent socialist ideas and its implied attack on bankers and investment. As most of us know, Mary Poppins appears out of the sky to become the governess for Little Jane and Michael Banks. Through force of will and wit, she sidesteps the job interview and other formalities, and before we know it, she is pulling in probably big things out of small bags, needing rooms with a snap of her fingers, and sliding up and down banisters with gravity-defying grace. Okay, I, I just want to pause there. Does the fact that she skips the job interview, is that socialist? Like, is that implying that, oh, pe- <laughs> like, this is this movie is proposing a world where people don't even have to, like, have any experience or, or like, work. There's, there's no know? adversity or struggle. Right, right. And, and it goes to she, even in that scene where she cleans up the room uh-huh. you know with just a spoonful of uh-huh. sugar there's no struggle that's there a, that's a metaphor how socialists just think everything can be done for free yeah, <laughs> yeah. um so he goes on poppins seems to know the local street musician and sidewalk painter bert and with him and the children they jump into chalk paintings on the sidewalk and explore fantastic worlds where they can ride merry-go-round horses across the countryside i love how he's describing a children's story with like as if he doesn't get that like it's like, like a court transfer <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's so so (laughs) clinical. In other scenes, they float into the air with the power of laughter and swish up chimneys to observe fantastical rooftop dancing. I think he's really padding this argument. Most unorthodox. Guys, we've seen Mary (laughs) Poppins. Mr. Banks is a busy banker, striving for order and stability in his work and his home. Mrs. Banks is a suffragette, preoccupied with her marching and protest for women's right to vote. So yeah, she's an absentee mother. That's no good because she's off doing, doing, doing the politics. Neither have time to spend with the children. Mary Poppins has ostensibly arrived on the scene to look after the children and assist with their education. Mr. Banks is frustrated with the frivolous ways that Mary Poppins entertains the children, so he brings them to the bank to see where he works. And now this should have been the happy ending, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> like, finally, we've, we've left behind Mary's postmodern mm-hmm. neo-Marxist <laughs> worldview of, of laughter and joy. <laughs> so this is pretty much, like, this should be, this is the entire argument of this, of this article here. Young Michael has two pence, tuppence. That's good of him that he put that in brackets. <laughs> so we know what, what the currency we're discussing is. Uh, uh, that he hopes to use to buy some uh, seed to feed the pigeons. But when the senior director of the bank gets wind of this, he's told that he must invest the money and not throw it away on making pigeons fat. I guess the, the pigeons here are kind of a stand-in for all those public sector workers with their mm-hmm. gold-plated pensions. I'm surprised. He, did he not mention the bird lady? Because, I mean, she she's a, a, a much more abject figure than... <laughs> maybe, maybe she'll come up later. I can't remember. What follows is a remarkable musical scene where the bank directors outline the exciting opportunities available for investment. And well, so he's watching those those bankers. He's, and, he's, and he's loving He's it. cheering along, yeah. yeah. If you invest your toughens wisely in the bank safe and sound soon that toughens safely invested in the bank will come proud and you'll achieve that sense of conquest as your affluence expands 
in the hands of the directors who invest as propriety demands. May I, sir? Michael's response to all of this is clearly disgust, and he and his sister are slowly backed up, literally, against a wall as the bank's directors enthusiastically sing the merits of investing. When Michael shouts, give me my money, he inadvertently prompts a run on the bank. What's so striking about this scene is that it has the opposite effect of what I imagine was its original intent. All of those things that wise investments produce actually are exciting, and if presented appropriately, should fire the imagination of a six-year-old boy more than a clutch of dirty pigeons. The creator of Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers, was not particularly political, but like many writers, artists, and intellectuals between the wars, was intrigued enough by Soviet communism to travel to Russia and visit factories, prisons, and nurseries in an effort to see uh, to learn about the gifts of collectivism. Collectivism was not just political fashion, but heralded as the solution to a future of classless prosperity and financial stability. When the propaganda... <laughs> When the propaganda pushed by Russia and China and the widespread infiltration of the Comintern throughout North America and Europe, communism increasingly came to be favored by artists, writers, and filmmakers. The criticism of the bankers and the celebration of the dancing chimney sweeps in Mary Poppins should be seen against this ideological background. Unfortunately... Many in Hollywood still suffer from a delusional commitment to collectivism, a political ideology that has created more human suffering than any other. Anyway, uh, I hope he enjoyed his daughter's uh, school performance of Mary Poppins. He may have been heartened by the recent sequel, Mary Poppins Returns, which uh, I'm going to spoil the ending of it. Throughout the movie, young Michael Banks, who in the sequel is a grown man with his own children, the movie basically just replays the plot of the first movie, but with the next generation. He needs to, I don't know if it's a mortgage payment or whatever it is, he has to to get to the bank in time to make the payment or he's got to hand over the deed to his son. Anyway, he's going to lose his house. And the bank is run by a very evil man played by Colin Firth. And this man is symbolic of everything wrong with capitalism. But don't worry, there is such a thing as benevolent capitalists (laughs) embodied by, yes, Dick Van Dyke in a cameo. Dick Van Dyke plays the son of his banker character from the first movie, who reveals to Michael Banks that the tuppence that he invested 30, 40 years ago has actually compounded into enough to save his house. So the sequel actually vindicates Mr. Bank. It was like, actually, it's it's good that he invested that tuppence in the bank and didn't give it to the bird lady. Well, as it saved him in the long run. This this writer at the Fraser Institute will, will have been happy with the depiction of bankers in saving Mr. Banks because, because there's a scene where uh, Colin Farrell is nearly fired because he's a bad employee at the a bank or he's a bad partner. But then when... Uh, the other banker, you know, sort of, you know, monocle brandishing banker sees, uh, uh, you know, sees the tears of, of, uh, of young PL Travers. He, uh, she, she goes, she's saying, daddy, are you fired again? And he goes, no, no, my dear, he's not fired. So who says capitalism can't have a human face? Now watch this drive. Around the house, I never lift a finger. As a husband and father, I'm subpar. I'd rather drink a beer than with father of the year. I'm happy with things the way they are. I'm getting used to never getting noticed. I'm stuck here till I can steal a car. The house. 
house is still a mess, and I'm going bald from stress. But we're happy just the way we are. They're not perfect, but the Lord says love thy neighbor. Shut up, Flanders. Oakley, doakley, do. Don't think it's our grapes, but you're all a bunch of beets. Do you think we'll ever see her again? I'm sure we will, honey. I'm sure we will. <laughs>